Okay, amen. Praise God. So good to be here. So encouraging, so thrilling, so exciting to be in the presence of God. Actually, we never escape the presence of God. We just sort of get together on a pile. Uh, God does not dwell in this building. He dwells in your hearts. But it is extra special when we get together, when we're unified, when we're one in Christ, when we become one body, one mind, fitly put together like a puzzle. And I don't like puzzles. Puzzle, putting a puzzle together would be a form of torture. But there is something very scientifically important and beautiful about a puzzle. And I'm sensing that here, and it's reflecting in the style of your worship. I just love the way you all sing, and I think we sharped on a song or two. All right, I've been sort of, you know, mechanically taught through song leadership and choir singing. Some of you might know a little bit of my background. I'm not a good singer. That doesn't mean I'm a good singer. It means I love to sing, and I've been taught to sing. My dad used to say that we had to learn how to sing, and we had to know we had to be able to get middle C without the pitch pipe in order to eat, and he mend it. And so we had to sing and sing solos, and then we'd go to the table. So that was drilled into me. And I think we sharped a little bit, didn't we? Where's our song there? Where's it checked? Oh, I know. I know we changed keys. <laughs> but I still think we sharped a little bit. And they say that is the propensity of a good song leader, a good congregational singer. You tend to sharp because this is what enthusiasm does. Is that, so, is that why my voice keeps going higher and higher? And I start screaming after a while. Sort of that enthusiasm, that's what I'm feeling here. I like it, it's warm, it's good. And I, because it's coming from your heart, not your intellect. The other thing I had to wonder about here this morning as I sat over here in the pew taking everything in is, is there anything like spiritual gluttony? You know, we sang together, and Judson got up here, we had the beautiful Bible reading, and so then we had the beautiful stop sign, yield sign, and the beautiful singing. Then I get up here and preach, and you all planned how Sunday school yet after that in. So how much can the heart and the mind and the soul finally contain until it just like starts running off like too much rain, eh? So, but anyhow, we're going to keep going, won't we? We're not going to cancel now. And so it's really been a pleasure to be here. When we met over here as uh, the pastors, Brother Tony prayed. He prayed something like this. He's sort of praying for me. And he said that God would reveal to me uh, the needs or what he should need to preach. That's good. That was perfect. But this morning, I feel like I'm going to pre preach. I'm going to preach on a subject that humanly, uh, I almost like you know commune with God and argued with God. Lord, do they really need it? I feel like I'm violating Tony's prayer because what I'm going to preach about is something that I normally don't traditionally do on a week of meetings. I know Sunday morning. Traditionally, if you know evangelists back over the decades, even before a lot of you were born, Sunday morning preach on the what? Starts with H. Yeah, home. And I, I didn't do that over the years, but I was so compelled to do it. I said, Lord, on the home. Because I've been following these people. I'm listening. I've been into a lot of your homes. And the atmosphere of those homes, you know, there are other areas we ought to go. And God said, uh-uh, no, you're going to preach on the home. I, I know when God speaks for me. I'm a slow learner, I'm hard, I'm worn out, maybe half senile, but I know when God arrests me. And so we're going to speak on the subject of the home because that's what God wants me to speak about. So I'm going to do it. 
And so you may get your Bibles, please get your Bibles, go to the great psalmist of Israel. Actually, this is a song of Solomon, I guess, Psalm 127. I'm going to be talking about home atmosphere. What is the atmosphere in your home? I would like for you to calculate. I want you to think from the bottom of your heart this morning, and don't do the tendency of thinking of someone else's home, comparing your home life and the relationship that you and your wife have with someone else that's worse or even better. I just want you to get your, open up your mouth, reach down into your mouth, through your esophagus, and pull out your heart and turn it inside out one time. Take a good look at it, compare it to the Word of God as we go and see what God has to say about the home. And so I discovered this theology in studying the home and doing different series on the home, and really the foundation of the home is the marriage. If you're going to have a good marriage, you're going to have a good home. This is what creates atmosphere. And if you're going to have a good marriage, you need two good people who are madly in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you have that conflict, and you're not living for sin and self and lust, and you dump all your passion and all your allegiance upon your wife and vice versa, you are going to have heaven on earth. And, this is, this, and that creates atmosphere. It just automatically creates atmosphere. And when children come along, you know, year by year, and they're in this little pocket, they're in this envelope of atmosphere where there's just love and dedication and romance, and they can feel that it saturates them, somehow it impregnates a security, and they get an image of God for what he is. Children do not understand God because their daddy doesn't understand God, and we don't wait to obey God and love God until we understand Him. But it's very, very difficult for children to get a good, accurate image of who and what God is. So the image that our, our marriage as husbands and wives, as individuals, and in our marriage make, the, the, uh, the atmosphere and the image that we make in our marriage is, is going to be the impression that children get of God because they see daddy as the pastor of the home. He should be. So if you're here this morning and you're a married man and you, you have children, you are the pastor of your home. You are the high priest. And both of those things need to lead their family in worship, that is, in a close, intimate relationship with God the Father. This creates atmosphere, even without trying. So where there's love, where there's worship, where there is allegiance, and where there is sexual fidelity, these things create atmosphere, and it silts into our children subconsciously. They don't even know it. And we begin to duplicate the very thing that we're enjoying. All right. So this is why I talk about atmosphere. In Psalm 127, in Ephesians 5, and many other places talk about atmosphere. Uh, atmosphere is a result of a fact. Sometimes we are impatient and we put more emphasis on the result than the actuality. And so let's just be the men, of, the men and women of God that we should be. Let's love our wives and love our husbands. Let's love one another and respect each other and pleasure one another the way the Bible tells us to. And then that automatically creates a result called atmosphere. And it's in that atmosphere you raise up your children. They're going to duplicate. They're going to love it because it's contagious. It's attractive. Is your home life attractive? So, you know, in, in natural weather, we have pressure and temperature and humidity. Okay? Those three things create weather. 
atmosphere. And so we had a low pressure, we had a low pressure system, so that that brings moisture in over the place where you all live here the last couple of days, and maybe this coming week, I think, uh, I understand there might be some more rain according to what Verlin's heard on the news or something, if I understood right, if I was awake. And so there's a low pressure system that pushes in moisture, pushes in clouds, and then there's atmospheric pressure that pushed that in, and that mixes with air and the humidity, and finally the humidity gets to a point where it's so high, it just got to fall down, can't see up, it's just got to come tumbling down. Okay, so this is what we want to do in our homes because with our dynamic love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an authority, an inspiration, a possibility to love our wife as Christ loved the church and the way we love God. And so that type of love, that kind of pressure, that humidity creates, it just creates a love that just tumbles and spills out. When I walk into your house, I can feel it, I can taste it, I can cut it with a knife, I like it. And I'm very, very sensitive when I walk into people's homes. I don't know why. I, I don't intentionally want to be because I'm very interested in the home. I love working with young people. And I, you just sort of, we're just like the song leader. He, he goes to another congregation. He, he watches the song leader. Does he know how to beat time? You know, does he have what it takes? And you guys that are carpenters, you walk into a church and you look at the trim. Did the trim carpenter do a good job? I, I couldn't tell you one little bit, you know. So, you know, being a pastor and so on, I, I just sort of tend to study that type of thing. It's sort of crazy on me, but I guess I'm a little crazy. Who cares? Uh, so... I just really appreciate being in your homes. We're talking about atmosphere. So what kind of atmosphere is in your house? What do you think? I mean, how, how is your home? And I guess maybe the reason why the Lord wanted me to preach this is all the young people that you're having, and you know, there are more people could be getting married over the years, Lord willing, and I see newlyweds sitting here all glowy, glittery-eyed. I don't even think they're listening to me. They hope that they get a little bit, maybe one time. And so let's look at Psalm 127. Get your Bibles quickly. Psalm 127. Let's see what he says. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He's talking about home life. I think he's talking about marriage here. Except the Lord watch the city. Except the Lord watch the children, the marriage, and everything that happens inside of a home. That includes the music and the words and the tone of the words and the attitudes. Yes, attitudes that daddy has, his propensity to lead out in worship. Except the Lord is centered. I studied this morning in the French Bible. I went to the French. Sometimes I go to other versions. I really like the way the French reads. And so I was studying this in the French, and it said something like this, that unless... Unless the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is central theme of everything that happens in the construction of your marriage and home. Eh? How do you like that one time? Okay, so that's off to the French. But that's, uh, so unless the Lord is in the middle of your life, fathers and mothers, unless he is in your heart impregnated, his spirit impregnated into your life, unless you're in a love, in a made, well, I don't know, that's not the right word, in a romantic love relationship, if he's not in those things, you're not going to have a good marriage. You're not going to have a good heart. You're not going to have a good home. That's very, very simple, eh? Two plus two equals what? Three. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, they are awake. Okay. So, except the Lord build the house, the marriage, whatever, they labor in vain. Yes, that build it. Except the Lord keep the city unless he's in it, unless he's the protector, the inspire, the model. 
the model Christ in the church. We're going to get to Ephesians 5. It's futile. You can spin your wheels like on an exercise bicycle, all propped up, pedal yourself. Looks like you're in child labor. You're moaning, sweating, getting nowhere. You know, we see people in homes doing that. Unless the Lord is central, unless the Lord is central in your heart, in your marriage, he's not going to be in, in home atmosphere, all right? So I guess if you forget everything else I say, you got that right. Did you say amen? Okay, one person got it. I'll keep going. <laughs> it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, or to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. We can try to have a good marriage. We can try and raise our children, love them, teach them, spank them, and instruct them. But unless we do it out of a heart that is genuine and in relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not going to work. Okay. So low children are an heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty, that's a military. The word mighty there is actually a military man. So are children of their youth. Happy, blessed, content, and secure. Now you come across all those words. If you look at other, okay, other versions, you get even in the Spanish, even in the French sometimes, they're both Latin-based. They come up with the same words. Happy, content is the man that hath his quiver full. And so I don't know how big your quiver is. We don't all need the same. Actually, on my siblings, I'm number 13. Is that what you call a litter? <laughs> There's a lot of us. My brother said when mom said, hey, the food's ready. Get to the table. If one of us tripped and fell, we didn't get anything. No, it wasn't that, wasn't that chaotic. But, but that's, that's, a, that's a lot of children. So, but happy is the man. Who hath his quiver full of children. We live in, in a society where children are disdained. They are a nuisance. Uh, we don't want to bother with children. They're too much headache. We're pleasure-minded, and we want to do things, enjoy life, experience immediate gratification, do the, go places where we can't take the children. And so we're, we live in a society that sort of scorns children. So have children. If you're here this morning and you're a mother, you have four, five, six children. You're baking cookies and changing diapers. You are the greatest person upon the face of the earth. There is no occupation under heaven, under the sun, greater than a mother. That's why uh, someone said the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Abraham Lincoln himself said, everything that I am or hope to become, I must attribute to that of my angel mother. I can say the same thing. There's one point I agree with Abraham Lincoln. Him and I are together. I can't even tell him that. He's dead. But everything that I am or ever hope to become, I must attribute to that of my angel mother. I also have an angel of a wife. I have two wonderful women in my life. Make that three with my daughter. Understand the way I said that. My mother and my wife and my daughter. I'm a man of one wife. All right, so happy is the man. He's blessed. He's secure. He's protected when he has many children. And they, he's never going to be ashamed. And when he goes to the, oh, yeah, it does say that it did in the French. I should have studied in the English here. I just did this this morning in the French. Okay, so, yep, he's never going to be ashamed. And when he goes to the gates of the city where they meet for political discussions, and when his enemies come around him, they're not going to put him to shame. They're not going to talk him bad. Because he raised his children, and they rise up, and they call him blessed. They verify the truth of his life, and he's never going to be let down. He's never going to be ashamed. When our children get up, they catch on with our convictions, and they grow up. They turn 25 and 27. Daddy gets a little smarter every year, and they come, and they, they sort of 
they come around us and we build a hedge around them being holy fathers and now they grow up and call us blessed and in our old age when the belts begin to slip and you can hardly preach anymore like me then they come around us and they build a hedge of protection around us they rise up and call us blessed it is a good feeling one time eh? that's very very good so what is the atmosphere like in your home I had to think of uh, some things that we could call the home. What is a home? If I were to ask you this morning, what is a home? If you would draw a picture of the ideal home, what would you say? What adjectives, what adverbs would you say? Now, I know I'm really talking fast. I don't like to talk so fast, but that clock is my enemy, so I'm sort of not giving you a lot of time to answer. So if you would do a 10-word or a 20-word essay on the idealistic Christian home, what would be some points that you would put in there? Now think it through. Are you thinking of some points? Forgiveness? Joyful order. All right, so all, all those points, those of you who were too shy to answer, because somehow, hey, I'm not a very threatening person whatsoever. I mean, more of you could have answered. So you think of all those good points, that should be in a Christian home, you had the opportunity to do it. Don't let it just be linguistic. Just don't let it be idealistic. Do it. Whatever you think a home ought to be, you have every tool, everything that heaven can pour out upon you as tools to create the type of home that you think would be ideal if you were to write a 200-word essay on it. Do it. It's there. It's available. Get on, go, move. You might say, hey, well, look, you know, we're married 20 years. We got children. They're 12 years old. We made a lot of mistakes. Who cares? We all make mistakes. There's no perfect father or mother sitting in this audience here this morning. You can go back. You can confess. You can repent to your children. I had to do that. It wasn't so much what I said to my boys. And we had a wonderful time when they were teenagers. We love teenagers in their house, in our house. We still do. A lot of teenagers went through our house, ate up a storm of food. I, don't, I look back and I don't know how I ever paid for all that food. And so they were coming and going, and then after all, some girls started coming, and we had five boys. And so, you know, it's, there, there are times I had to go back and say, and, you know, walk up to their bedroom and say, hey, Mike or Brent, I'm sorry. It's not what I was trying to say, but maybe the way that I said it. So if you're here this morning and you think, hey, it's too late, I'm married too long, I goofed, I had some children maybe that are out in the world or whatever, you can still repent. You can start all over. You can go back, confess, repent, get over that thing and move on and change the course of your home, create a new atmosphere in your home right now. You can do it if you want to. Don't say you can't do it. I know the bottom looks bad, but the top is bigger. Everything up there in heaven, everything above you is there waiting for you to start over. If that wouldn't be a possibility, we'd all be doomed for failure because we all fail. We've all looked back and had embarrassing moments and had to go back. So... And if you're young here and you're engaged and you're twinkling in your eyes, you're starting out afresh, listen to every word that I say. Not me, but what is in the Bible. So some things that could be in the home. I think the home is a place where there is one man, one woman happily living together, sharing life together. It's a playhouse, the place where we play and dream. It's a place where... We share. It's a workshop for secure children. It's a castle of love and liberty where the soul sings. It's a place where we can even burp when we need to if you don't do it too loudly. It's just home. 
It's a schoolhouse of learning and training and education. It's a place of dreams, a place to talk about future goals and possibilities. It's a sanctuary of worship and praise where daddy is a godly, loving high priest and mother is queen supreme and she is the only woman in his life. It's also a jailhouse sometimes of scoldings and spankings and I hated to spank, but you know, we don't hear a lot of sermons about spanking anymore and I know it's tough. We had five boys I loved and played down on the floor and fixed bicycles and we restored old cars. Mechanics is my natural gifting. And so we thought we had boys about raised. Nine years later, along came a little girl. And you know, it was so hard for me to discipline her and to spank her. The people of the church said, hey, the poor girl has no father. She has three grandpas and no father. And so the home, the home has to be a place sometimes of scoldings and spankings. And we, we don't hear a lot of sermons on on how to properly spank a child when we're not angry. Children need good discipline. So the home is that too, a place of correction, of loving discipline. It's a place of laughter, crying, confessing, and repenting, forgiving one another, loving one another. It's home. I had to think of the old song that says, walking down the street one evening, I passed by a cottage so neat. I stopped and looked in the window. Do you know that song? And there I saw a picture so sweet. A husband, his wife, and their baby, they were hugging and kissing too. And he turned aside his tears to hide. And from his lips came these words, What is home without a sweet wife to meet you each night at the door? What is home without a baby to love and to tease and adore? What is home without sunshine to spread its bright rays from above? You may have wealth and all its pleasure, but what is home without love? And so you don't need to be rich. Your children don't need the latest, fanciest toys, but the biggest Christmas gift, daddies, that you can give to your children is your life. When you get down there on the floor and you act like an animal, you act like an old Toyota, and you crawl around that floor and go pum pum and whatever, that's the biggest Christmas gift you can give to your children. I remember some years I had to learn this, we bought some fancy toys a little bit for our children. I thought that year we spent a little bit too much money. And so they opened up these gifts and they took these toys out of these beautiful, nice cardboard boxes and sort of neglected the toys and played all afternoon with the cardboard box. Now, I'm not saying give them an extra cardboard carton, but I'm just saying that we need to have our heads threaded on right. And they just, our children want us. They need time. It's called quality time. And it's spelled L-O-V-E. It's spelled T-I-M-E. And time means time. We talk about quality time. But quality time, quality time is spelled only T-I-M-E. It takes time. And I know that we're very, very busy. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, before we do there, let's go to Mark on the way. Let's jam into Mark just a real little bit. I like to look at a basis here to have, we're talking about atmosphere and how to create atmosphere in our homes, Mark chapter 10. And I know that you're very familiar with this, and I think Jesus repeated the writings of Moses back there in Genesis, where Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, uh, where is this? Maybe uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. 
But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Isn't that wonderful? For this cause, because of this, verse 7. Are you there? Are you seeing it? For this cause shall a man, what? Leave his father and his mother. And I'm going to put in there all, okay, or a lot of maybe personal selfish interests. And he shall, what is the next word? Cleave to his wife. So did you ever play football? When I was young, we didn't play a whole lot of volleyball. But we played softball. We played a lot of football. Hence, I got some sports injuries. But anyhow, and, and I think we did it in a sanctified manner. I, that doesn't mean I was a good player. It means that we like to play. And so when, when, I think of, when I think of leaving and cleaving, I think of football. When you're the quarterback and you got to hustle, I, I couldn't run fast. I was never fast. That's why when we played baseball, you know, I, I could do a pretty evil pitch. But I couldn't run fast. But when you think of playing, you know, when you hit a ball, say you're playing softball and you're, and you're the batter and you hit a ball, you know, you hustle, you run as fast as you can. You want to get out of there. Now, when we played tackle, we cleave. You got you to gotta rush that quarterback. You got to, what's the word they use? You ever play football? You want to sack him. That means you get him down on the ground. You rip him down on the ground before that ball can escape his hand. That's called sacking if you never played football. So that's, if you're a good linebacker, you got to get through that line. You got to get up to that quarterback. And you're going to hang on him, and if he's big and burly, he might drag you 12 yards as long as you don't go over the line of scrimmage. Okay, you guys know a little bit about football. I see some smiling going on. I get, you're relating. You can't let him get over the line of scrimmage. They get three more tries. So you've got to bring him down. You're going to cleave. And so if we're going to have a good home atmosphere, I think it's up to the husband. 99.9% .9 of women are highly responsive. They're like an artesian well. You treat a woman right, there's, there's a low percentage of women that are Jezebels. And some of those sit in the church. And I don't think there's a Jezebel here this morning, but I'm just going to say it the way it is. So I don't think there's any like that here. Most women really respond in kindness. They just gush. When they have a husband who is kind and faithful and who loves them like Christ loved the church. And so... Women really, really respond. Our wives really respond to us when we, when we leave those things that we should not be connected to. One would be father and mother. And that, might, that might be some interest that we had. You know, long-range hunting, going up to Colorado for two weeks and hunting elk, elk, or I don't know what's up there, those goats in the highlands. Some of those things you might have to stop doing. You're going to leave some of those things, your individualities, and you're going to cleave. You're going to cleave to your wife as Christ clove, cleaved, which is the right word, to the church. He didn't just rescue us and redeem us and desert us. He daily walks with us. And he supplies all our needs. He daily, David said in the Psalms, loads us with blessings. He walks with us. And when a husband is so intimate with his wife and all his passion and his love, and his time, and his sexual energy is dumped into one woman. She's going to respond. 99.9% .9 of women respond. There's a few Jezebels out there who don't. And believe me, my wife and I have our privilege of working with some of those sometimes. Most women will respond. So I'm talking to you fathers. It says about a man here. And so if you're going to have a good atmosphere in your home, if you want a strong church, you're going to need a strong home. And if you want a happy, strong marriage and a romantic marriage, you're going to need a strong man. 
a man that is in control of his passions, he's going to say no, no to temptation, no to sin. He's not going to do it. He's not going to overextend himself in doing things that bring no pleasure or security or benefit to his wife and make her suffer in his absence. Now, I didn't say sacrifice. There are times when we need to leave home and the family has to sacrifice for the cause of the kingdom. And that can be overdone, let me hasten to say. That can be overdone. But when, when we love our wives, when we cleave to them and make them prince, when we, when we just make them queen of our hearts, queen of the house with love and respect and kindness, she's going to overwhelmingly respond. And this is going to create an atmosphere in your home where people want to be. It's going to be pleasurable. It's going to be beautiful. People are going to want to come into your house. You're going to feel it, eat it, and cut it. And this is the type of thing you want to bring your children up in. But you've got to create it. It's not automatic. It, it just, just doesn't happen overnight. It's hard work. It's like keeping your body clean, keeping your car maintained. Relationships can be difficult. But when you love them, when you put emphasis in your relationship and you polish that thing, it's going to grow. Whatever grows, whatever you feed grows. Okay, so you take time and you love your wife. Cleaving, I'm sorry, leaving and cleaving. So you might say, well, how do you do that? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. You knew that we're going to get there, right? Eh? Sure. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me show you something very, very beautiful. You know the words already. You probably committed this to memory. I don't know. But I just love Ephesians 5, the latter part of it. And it seems every time I read it, I just find something new, and I'm just really impressed with it. But then they say, someone said it doesn't take much to impress a simple mind. But then again, we are looking at the Word of God. So we should always be impressed, thrilled, excited about the life-changing Word of God. Can anybody say amen? Are you with me? Am I just wasting your time? And you're all sort of sitting there like, I'm catching on. I mean, I'm saying it right. Okay. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, us big burly men, we love verse 21, 21, 21. Oh, wives, submitting yourselves unto one another. Make that verse 22. I'm sorry, one verse later. Wives, submit to yourselves unto your own husbands. Oh, honey, you got to obey me. I'm the man of the house. Pollution, decimation, stink. But oh, some men love this, especially when we, when I teach this cross-culturally uh, where their value system in their marriage is not quite like ours, and we begin to slice and dice and maximize, open up these verses here in Ephesians 5, and these men say, you know what, I heard stuff about marriage and how to treat my wife and pleasure my wife. I never heard these. I didn't know these things were in the Word of God. Well, they're in here. You can't believe it. We tend to go water skiing when we ought to go diving. So let's look and see what it says. Why submit to yourselves? All right, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so we sort of like that, but he tells us how that we are to be the head. The head here means he is the savior and the lover and the protector. All right, so this is what I got to do to my wife. And I can't think of anything more pleasurable in my life outside of salvation, than being the head, the proper type of head of my wife, as Christ was the head of the church, where I shower all my love upon her, and I do everything I can to protect her. That means I'm going to be sensitive to her feelings. And sometimes she doesn't always understand her feelings because she doesn't understand her own. This is women. This is what makes women beautiful in the eyes of us, big, burly men who have everything boxed off, separated, 
and incremented and we understand life and so that's just not how a woman is. So when I love her because I love her, I'm going to protect her. That means I'm going to be sensitive to her needs and I'm going to sacrifice sacrificially. Well, that was very intelligent, two words right in a row. I'm going <laughs> to... You just got to laugh at yourself when you do dumb stuff. It's the best way to preach. Okay, so I had to learn to slow down and, and sacrificially just stop and study her so I can understand how to help her, maybe understand herself. And she doesn't always want to understood. She said, you don't have to understand me. Just be patient and kind. And so I want to be patient and kind. I don't try and figure her out. It's even more difficult, complex than what is keyboards and computers. This is what makes women my wife so beautiful and extravagantly elegant. <laughs> Is that funny? I, I didn't even think that's funny. But Okay, go ahead and laugh. Get it out of your system and I'll continue. For the husband is the head of the wife, please. Go on to the next verse. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, I like verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, look, we, let's, let's take that verse, out, that verse out of there and let's put it beneath the uh, microscope. What is God saying here when he says that we, we as husbands, we're talking about creating atmosphere and romance and love and security in our homes, right? Amen? Okay. So here he tells us how to do it. He's saying that we should love our wives like Christ loved the church to the point where he gave himself for it. So let me ask you a question. You know, how much is that worth? What all did Jesus Christ do for the church? Do the church is made up of individual people just like you? Don't think of it collectively. We tend to think collectively and thereby exempt ourselves from being forced to think things through theologically. Did you understand what I just said there? To think of it individually, this means you. What all, and I said this the other night, what value would you place on your salvation? How much did God do for you? What was it worth in dollar cents wise? What, astronomical, you, there's no measurement financially, no financial measurement for what God did for you. So let me ask you this. What did God not do for you? What did Jesus Christ, the husband of the church, not do for you in order to save you from hell and to supply all your needs eternally, emotionally, sexually? You have food to eat. We're expanding. I mean, look at all the blessings. You know, we sing that song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. So how, how do you, if you would bring all the blessings that God has blessed us with materially and spiritually and keep it upon one big pile, how big a pile of blessings would that be? So what did God, what did Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, do for you? Everything. What did he not do? What more could he do in order to bring more pleasure and security to your life? What more could he do? That's what I wanted to hear. Who said that? Put up your hand. Okay, you're with me. Nothing. Can we say that word together? Nothing. Husband, this is the command. Here's what the Bible is saying. It's not me. We need to be like Jesus Christ and your wife, the church, because I'm the church. Jesus Christ is my husband. And so we just decided there's nothing more he could do. Now, husbands, would our wives say that about you and I? If I would ask the bride, your physical Vagabond, uh, that didn't sound right. You're, you're human, the human bride. 
If I would ask her, is your husband, did, did he do <laughs> Come on, let's get a grip here. Did he do everything to you equal to what Jesus Christ did for the church? What would your wives say? How about your wife, Tony? Come on. You know, would, would she say, hey, there's nothing more this man could do. I mean, he's fulfilled, he fills rather, my every need. I bet he does. You know, good old Tony there one time. All right, so this, this is our model. This is what we got to strive to be. Did you ever think about it? This is just not nice uh, literary reading. This is not just fun. This isn't, you know, we'd say, oh, boy, that's really beautiful. This is powerful. This is life-changing. And we had all the, we stuck up all these nice adjectives sort of socially, humanly on these verses. And we say, that's good stuff. But then we walk away from it. And we don't imitate it. We don't do it. So I want to say, I want to suggest that we ought to do it to the same degree that the Bible says repent. You know, how, how, would, how, how would it be if, if, if God gives us a command that we're really strong? Let's, let's say the Christian woman's prayer veiling. What would happen to your wife, Tony, in your ministry? She would just stop wearing a head veiling. You'd be out to the street. Or would they come and plead with you kindly? So we follow that command. We sort of pick and choose which commands we take literal and feel are important. Then there are others we feel are hypothetical. They're just there for, uh, for fantasizing. They're there to play with and make a nice Sunday morning sermon, eh, one time. No, they're not there for that. None of the Word of God is there for that. God has a reason. You know, God doesn't lollygag. God's busy. When God does something, when He says something, He wants it to happen in order. Okay, and He gives us the equipment, the tools to do what He wants us to do. So when God says, head veiling, dress modestly, that's what He means. Don't lie, don't rob the bank, don't shoot anybody. Did, Josh, did you ever shoot anybody? Why not? Because the Bible says don't kill. You believe that. Okay, here the Bible says, husband, are you with me? Do you see what I'm trying to draw up? He says that we are to love our wives and give ourselves to them as the spiritual bridegroom loved his bride. That's you and I, the church. And we just said there's nothing more he could have done. But we don't do that because we don't believe it. We don't look at it the way I just explained it. And maybe I'm too selfish, too aggressive. I want to get to work, earn money. There are things in my life that are more important to me than making my wife feel happy and secure and pleasured. Then when that happens, then she reacts. And I react to her reaction. And soon we grew apart. But because we're nice Anabaptists, we don't divorce uh, in the court system, we divorce in the kitchen. And so that's when my wife and I come in. We go to revival meetings. The church is all over. And we sit up late at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, working with a husband and wife. They're not divorced, but they're divorced because they don't believe this kind of stuff. They don't act on it. But they don't rob banks. They don't shoot people. Because they say, well, the Bible says we shouldn't do that. Well, the Bible says here's what we should do one time. Is anybody halfway following my logic? Can you put your hand up so I know that you're alive? Do it up one time. Wow. 26. Oh, this is so rich. Now remember, he's drawing a picture between Christ and the church and husband and wife relationships. So, verse 26. So that I might get my wife and I might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by my love and my protection and the way I romance her and I make her feel very, very important. I listen to her mm, 
pleadings. I listen to her fears, her intuitions. I just take, I'm very, very sensitive to my wife. And so by doing that, I set her apart as though she's the only woman in the world. So when I fly to another country, she's not along. I come down to Tennessee, Athens, and I see all you other lovely women. You're just sort of like sticks out there because in my mind, I've sanctified my wife. I've set her apart, and I just imagine like she's the only female in the world. And you say, no, she's not. But yes, she is for me. She is for me. She's the only female in the world for me. And so while I see other women who might be beautiful, God bless them, but it's not for me. And so she is the only one for me. So hereby, I sanctify her. And in that sanctification, what I do is, in that type of dedicated love and protection and romance, I wash her in my protection. And she likes to shower. When she goes in, the water is hot. I mean, I can't hardly touch it. You know, so she wants to be clean. You know, we all want to be clean. And so we, I, we wash her in love. I'm spiritually, emotionally speaking here now, humanly. And so... It says that we sanctify her and we are to cleanse our wife. I'm not making these words up. and I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm just doctrinally trying to tell you what the Bible is telling you. Maybe you never heard it like this. Well, now you are. Okay, so this is a doctrinal issue. I'm not trying to be some romantic Bill Cosby. I guess he's in jail. You probably think I should be too. So we are to cleanse, we are to wash our wives, our relationships, her feelings by the water of our love that we might present to ourselves a glorious wife, a beautiful wife. You know, when a woman is happy and secure and adored, it's going to make her beautiful. The way I treat my wife, the, wife the, the vibrations that she gets from me, if she knows that I truly adore her and I think she is elegant, and I think she is beautiful. She's going to respond. I, I can make my wife what I want her to be. If I tear her down and I'd mock her and berate her and look at pornography and decimate her image of herself, that's what she would be. We sort of are what, you know, the atmosphere around us tells us we are. And so when we lift up our wife and we love them and we adore them, we cleanse them, we wash them in our love, in our acceptance, in our compliments, in our kindness, they grow, they love that, they vacuum it in, and they respond to that, and she becomes more and more beautiful. And so I walk by there the hallway, and I just can't help but look over that picture every time I go by. I think she's beautiful. And I, I would like to claim, I would like to say that I hope that I sort of help make her that way a little bit, eh? Beautiful. Elegant. Without having, how many of you remember like a wife like this? One that's glorious, spotless, clean, washed up, having no spot or no wrinkle. Now, we're not, of course, speaking physically. That might be a part of it a little bit. But to have a wife in such dynamic, elegant, extravagant... Oh, I did say that before. Why am I coming across with that? No spot, no wrinkle. A little bit like your shirt. Oh, my wife is terribly concerned that I got my shirts hung up in the closet because I had them all squinched in my thing. And I said, well, I hung them up there in the hanger. And, well, should have you ironed them? Oh, you, you know, I never ironed a shirt in my life. Well, are they hanging up nicely? You know, you don't want to stand up in front of people all wrinkly. And, you know, she's very, very concerned about my manners and my shirt and everything's proper because, you know, she's very elegant. You can see that by looking at her. And I don't measure up to that, so she has to worry a little. But to have <laughs> she's worried to death. That, not, that I'm, not that I'm not going to survive, but that you're going to survive me. <laughs> 
So we, we can have a wife and we make her like this without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. Eh? Uh, and so we, we can, in my love, when I love my wife and I adore her, then those little things about her that might irritate her, she's so soft to change. She's willing because I want to please her. And then she wants to please me. And so when a little something comes up, we're almost on a home run to make that little adjustment because there's the confidence, there's a love there. You think that's fictitious? I mean, that's out of this world. No, it's not. This is the command of God. I'm telling you what the Bible says doctrinally between a husband and wife. And I know that a lot of our marriages aren't there. And they're not there. This is why we struggle because we don't believe it. We're not doing it. This is why. But oh, we, think we get there in important things. We don't shoot. I never shot my mother-in-law, never robbed the bank. Because why? That would be idiotical. And so it's just as stupid for a husband not to adore and love and polish and wallish, polish and wash his wife in his love and make her beautiful and make her feel beautiful and important and the only woman in his life. This is what brings out the elegance. Elegant and beautiful. Said eleven thirty. That, that's over. That took an hour. Did I hear wrong yesterday? So, uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about the role of a dad. Can I do that? Because I think, you know, I don't think, you know, I, I, I come to the place in my preaching and relating to people in Sunday school rooms that if the husband is what he should be, you, you can have a pretty violent, you have a pretty bad wife, and she's going to make the adjustment. She's going to come around. Because look how filthy and dirty. And they, you remember the, the picture I painted of sinners, the church, before we were saved? You know, Jesus Christ came. He really changed all that. So if the husband is what he should be, he can have a pretty, pretty much of a roadkill wife. And she's going to change if he's going to be like Christ. Okay, so that's why I'm going to spend a little more time. And we're going to run out of time. I'm just going to quit at maybe 11.25. Stand up or wave me down or turn something off or have the pulpit collapse when we get there. Because what I have to say is not any more important than what you Sunday school teachers had to say. So if we're going to emphasize, look at the husband because we're the leader. So what should be the role of a husband to have a good, romantic, happy, solid marriage that's going to create an atmosphere of heaven? Heaven on earth. Yeah, that's what it says. No, the Bible doesn't say it verbatim like that, but that's the doctrine of it. So I have a, I have a few things here I'd like to look about. I would like to look at as far as, as as husbands. Number one, here's some basic rules. Number one, he needs to be a godly disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he has to love God. I would like to ask every warm-bodied man here this morning, from the age of 12 years on up, do you have a burning passion to love and to serve Jesus Christ? I'm not saying that you maximize that passion. I'm saying. Do you have a desire? Are you going to extremes in order to connect to God? It's not so much when God gets a hold of a man, he can, he can wipe all of us off like dust. It's not when God gets a hold of a man. It's when a man on his evolution gets a hold of God. Are you pursuing God? Men here this morning, get it, get it good. Are you pursuing God? You say, what does that have to do with romance and raising children? Everything. Everything. So number one is to be a godly disciple. He needs to have his 
passions in control, his emotions, his tongue, his eyes, his money. My dad always said, the best thing that I can do for you children is to love your mother and teach you to work. That's what my dad said. The best thing I can do for you is to love your mother and teach you how to work. There's nothing that tells us more about the ma a man than the way he loves his wife, treats his children, and spends his time and money. There's nothing that's going to tell you more about a man or yourself. Let me repeat it. Than the way he does or doesn't love his wife, treat his children, and earn and spend his money. That will tell you a whole lot about me. But my wife's not here to demonstrate that. I wish she would be. But it's just like you all are doing. This is why I think this is almost unnecessary, just sort of. It's like everything I saw in your homes. He keeps his passions in control. And number three, he sets priorities. He knows what's important in his home. And that is the feeling of his wife and the eternal destination of his children. And the business is way down at the bottom. I think it's good to have business and earn money. But that's not the most important thing. He got to set priorities. He needs to be a godly disciple. Number two, he needs to be a loving husband to his wife. We read through Ephesians 5. He needs to understand her. First Peter talks about uh, living with our wives, living together with knowledge, because the wife is the more delicate one. The beauty of feminine delicacy. And so we've got to understand that. And in order for me to understand big diesel engines, 2,000 horsepower engines as big as your pickup truck, I had to understand, before we go in there, or 480 volt switch gear, I had to know what I'm doing. You don't go in there and start dabbing around with relays and bus bars at 480 volt three phase. So we gotta understand. You don't just try stuff. In marriage, we don't just try stuff. And so we need to live together with our wives, with information with patience and kindness to understand her because she is more complex than switchgear. Not as dangerous, but more complex. And to there's nothing more enjoyable than to study the person that is most important in my life besides Jesus Christ. I, let, I want to go home Monday. I want to study my wife one time. You think I got to know her yet? I still think there's something in there I didn't discover yet, so I'm going to go home and start digging because I just love her. It, it's where I want to be with her. I want to be with her. So we need to understand her. We need to esteem her and cherish her, protect her. We did say all those things. Number three, he needs to be a kind father to his children. Ephesians 6, 4. We cannot be harsh. Spanking in the rightful way is not cruel. It's not harsh. The rod drives. It's not common. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Beat him, save your soul from hell. That beat him doesn't mean the way people beat their children. They always are beating their children. You go to inner cities, you know, and hey, I beat my kid today. It's not that kind of beating we're talking about there in Proverbs. All right, so you know what? I'm, so, okay, number four, the dad needs to be a humble leader in the home. Leadership, a humble leader. This doesn't mean he's bend over. This doesn't. This doesn't mean that he's flim-flimey and uh, it doesn't, that he vacillates without conviction, but we need to be a humble leader in the home. 
He's a daddy that needs to have vision for his children. He needs to close his eyes and look 20 years or 30 years out on ahead and do whatever he got to do in order to impregnate the Spirit of God and his children. Do whatever you got to do. That takes conviction. That takes time. This takes love. Above all that, it takes example. We got to show our children how to love and obey God. They got to see it. They don't understand it. They, they want to see it. They want to feel it. They want to see it done in daddy. They want to feel it coming out of mother. And so are your children noticing and feeling and seeing the passion that you have for Jesus Christ? Are you a leader of worship in your home? Do you have family worship in your home? It's so important. The family altar is the sense of thing. There's nothing more important that you're going to do every 24 hours than have family worship. And don't sit there and say, we don't have time. That would be a lie. Sorry about being so blunt and nasty. I didn't come to be nice. I'm not a nice preacher. You know that now. I erased all doubt. But we have time every 24 hours to do what's important. There are times that we need to skip. Children are sick. We have a week of revival meetings. They come home from school, have a lot of homework. We do homeschool. But basically, the father in the home needs to lead out in worship so that his, their children get an image of God. we got to show them, even when they're little. I remember when our boys were little, maybe from 2 to 12 or whatever that spread was, even before Tashi came, we'd have family worship. That was, that was, that was paramount. And I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I, I don't like to talk about my own family. I, I don't like when preachers do that. But I, we, it's just so important to have family worship. And you got to make it simple. you got to show them. And so, you know, different times, Janet and I would do skits. And so I remember the time we did Balaam and the donkey. And so I explained to my wife, yep, what we're going to do. And so, yeah, she was a little reluctant because she's uh, Miss Elegant. And so I'm pragmatic and rambunctious. And so we lined the boys up, and I got down on the floor, and she uh, rode on my back, and she started going, and I was pretty uh, <clears throat> energetic. She wasn't real comfortable. And so about halfway across the living room floor, me being old, the old donkey, old flamboyant donkey, I saw an angel here with a drawn sword. And so I started bucking and going back and forth, and the boys were squealing in delight because, you know, Mrs. Dignity sitting back there, Balaam Dignity was sitting on this donkey, and I was going back and forth, and she started losing, and she sort of lost control of her limbs, and she's not one to lose control. And so the boys noticed she's getting out of control, and I did too. And so I sort of put on more pressure, and oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, so she got the uh, yard stick, and she was hitting me over the butt. I, I could tell by the way she was hitting me, she was waiting to do that a long time. And so she was hitting me over the butt, and I stopped, and I was going back and forth, and she was flying out of control, and she grabbed my collar and pulled, and she kept whipping me somehow in the back of the butt with this yardstick, and, and finally I went down on the floor, crooked across, and she over the back, and Mrs. Digny and the boys said, oh, Mom, you should have seen that. I mean, this is better than eating ice cream. You know, they never forgot that we showed them Balaam, wicked, two-faced Balaam, and how God's spirit spoke in the donkey when he wouldn't speak through Balaam. See, I had their attention. And just a skit like that 
left the impression on those boys. And they come home now, and they're, you know, Mike's 39. Isaiah, I don't know how old he is. And Tasha, she's 19. And they talk about these skits and these family worship things that I just totally forget about. Now, Mrs. Elegant Balaam didn't forget about all of them. But the boys remember somehow that we showed them a picture of the Bible that they took with them through life. And so daddies, you ought to get down on the floor and go boom, boom, fix that bicycle, do what you got to do. Have a relationship with your children. Children, show them God. They want to see God in your life. The impression that they're going to have of God is the impression that you give them when they're from the ages 2 to 8 or 2 to 10. From then on, they start sort of turning into their own individualistic person. By the time they're 16, 18, you know, they're, they're going to become their own selves. We call it unique persons. And so when they're little, impressionable, when they laugh, when they listen and cry, those are the times that you show them and you give them an image of Jesus Christ. But you can't, you can't be going down the road. You can't be working and away preaching all the time. You need to spend time at home because you're the daddy. You're the humble leader of the home. You have vision. You have strength. You have conviction. And you lead by example. You lead by lifestyle. And your children go up and say, hey, you know, I want to be like mother. I want to, I want to be like dad. I want to do what, I want to replicate what dad did. This is what you want to do. Okay, so... Oh, I'm sorry, it's time for me to quit. We could talk about the lady, the mother, being a kind, submissive mother in the home. There is nothing more beautiful. You could go into Proverbs 31, and there we see the priceless jewel of, a, of the feminine, can I say species or whatever, a beautiful woman in the home loving her husband, supporting her husband, encouraging her husband on, uh, being with the children, praying with the children. It's such a beautiful picture. Again, I repeat, no wonder Abraham Lincoln said that all that I ever am or hope to become or am, I must attribute to that of my angel mother. And I understand that. And I know there's a lot of ladies here. There's a lot of men here this morning. You are that type of man that we talked about. You're that type of lady in the home, that you love your husband, you support your husband, that doesn't mean that you always agree. And you're going to have to let him make some mistakes, and you're going to have to let your wife make some mistakes, but you want to come to an understanding. And when you spend time together, when you spend time together, you're going to come to an understanding. And so God bless you and keep you, sanctify you in your marriages, in your courtship, you young people that are here, and... Do things God's way. When we simply believe God's word and do things God's way, it, it's going to work. It's going to be heaven on earth. He says it's going to yield the peaceable fruits of happiness and joy and romance. So God bless you very much.